Red Hawk Radio Theater proudly presents The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, A Scandal in Bohemia, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. To Sherlock Holmes, she is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. All emotions, and that one particularly, were abhorrent to his cold, precise, but admirably balanced mind. He never spoke of the softer passions, save with a gibe and a sneer. And yet there was but one woman to him, and that woman was the late Irene Adler of dubious and questionable memory. I had seen little of Holmes lately. My marriage had drifted us away from each other. Holmes, who loathed every form of society with his whole bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books. He was still, as ever, deeply attracted by the study of crime, and clearing up those mysteries which had been abandoned as hopeless by the official police. From time to time, I heard some vague account of his doings. Beyond those signs of his activity, I knew little of my former friend and companion. One night, I was returning from a journey to my patient, when my way led me through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door, I was seized with a keen desire to see Holmes again, and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. I rang the bell and was shown up to the chamber which had formerly been part of my own. With hardly a word spoken, but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair. Wedlock suits you. I think, Watson, that you have put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you. Seven? Indeed, I should have thought a little more. Just a trifle more, I fancy, Watson. And in practice, again, I observe. You did not tell me that you intended to go into harness. Then how do you know? I see it. I deduce it. How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately and that you have a most clumsy and careless servant girl? <laughs> My dear Holmes, this is too much. You would certainly have been burned have you lived a few centuries ago. It is true that I had a country walk on Thursday and came home in a dreadful mess, but as I have changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduce it. As to Mary Jane, she is incorrigible, and I have given her notice, but there again, I fail to see how you work it out. <laughs> it is simplicity itself. My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts. Obviously, they have been caused by someone who has very carelessly scraped round the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. As to your practice, if a gentlewoman walks into my room smelling of iodoform with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon her right forefinger and a bulge on the right side of her bonnet to show where she has secreted her stethoscope, I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce her to be an active member of the medical profession. <laughs> when I hear you give your reasons, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself, though at each successive instance of your reasoning I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently? How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. 
By the way, since you are interested in these little problems, and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences, you may be interested in this. The note was undated and without either signature or address. It came by the last post. Read it aloud. They will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can hardly be exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber then at that hour and do not take it amiss if your visitor wears a mask. This is indeed a mystery. What do you imagine it means? I have no data yet. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. But the note itself, what do you deduce from it? The man who wrote it was presumably well-to-do. Such paper could not be bought under half a crown a packet. It is abnormally strong and stiff. Abnormal. That is the very word. It is not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. I did so, and saw a large E with a small G, a P, and a large G with a small T woven into the texture of the paper. What do you make of that? The name of the maker, no doubt. Or his monogram, rather. Not at all. The G with the small T stands for Gesellschaft, which is the German for company. It is a customary contraction, like our co. P, of course, stands for papier. Now for the E.G. Let us glance at our continental gazetteer. Iglo. Iglonitz. Here we are. Igria. It is in a German-speaking country, in Bohemia, not far from Carlsbad. Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Wallenstein and for its numerous glass factories and paper mills. <laughs> My lady, what do you make of that? The paper was made in Bohemia. Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Do you notice the peculiar construction of the sentence? This account of you we have from all quarters received. A Frenchman or Russian could not have written that. It is the German who is so uncourteous to his verbs. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. And here he comes, if I am not mistaken, to resolve all our doubts. A pair, by the sound. Yes, a nice little brougham in a pair of beauties. 150 guineas apiece. There's money in this case, Watson, if there is nothing else. I think I'd better go, Holmes. Not a bit, Doctor. Stay where you are. I'm lost without my Boswell. And this promises to be interesting. It would be a pity to miss it. But your client... Never mind him. I may want your help, and so may he. Here he comes. Sit down in that armchair, Doctor, and give us your best attention. Come in. A man entered who could have hardly been less than six feet six inches in height, with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress was rich with a richness which would, in England, be looked upon as akin to bad taste. He carried a broad-brimmed hat in his hand, 
while he wore across the upper part of his face, extending down past the cheekbones, a black mask, which he had apparently adjusted that very moment, for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. You had my note. I told you that I would call. Pray take a seat. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor to address? You may address me as the Count von Kram, a bohemian nobleman. I understand that this lady, your friend, is a person of honor and discretion, who I may trust with a matter of the most extreme importance. If not, I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. It is both or none. You may say before this gentlewoman anything which you may say to me. Then I must begin by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time, the matter will be of no importance. At present, it is not too much to say that it is of such weight that it may have an influence upon European history. I promise. And I. You will excuse this mask. The august person who employs me wishes his agent to be to you. And I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own. I was aware of it. The circumstances are of great delicacy, and every precaution has to be taken to quench what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families in Europe. To speak plainly, the matter implicates the great house of Ormstein, hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that. If your majesty would condescend to state your case, I should be better able to advise you. You are right. I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why, indeed. Your majesty had not spoken before I was aware that I was addressing the king of Bohemia. But you can understand. You can understand that I am not accustomed to doing such business in my own person. Yet the matter was so delicate that I could not confide it to an agent without putting myself in his power. I have come incognito from Prague for the purpose of consulting you. Then pray consult. Some five years ago, during a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of a well-known adventuress, Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you? Kindly look her up in my index, Doctor. For many years, he had adopted a system of docketing all paragraphs concerning men and things so that it was difficult to name a subject or a person on which he could not at once furnish information. Let me see. Hmm. Born in New Jersey in the year 1858. Contralto. Hmm. La Scala. Hmm. Prima Donna, Imperial Opera of Warsaw. Yes. Retired from operatic stage. <laughs> Living in London. Quite so. Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back. Precisely so. But how... Was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None. Then I fail to follow, Your Majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? There is the writing. Pooh, pooh. Forgery. And my private notepaper? Stolen. And my own seal? Imitated. My photograph? Bought. We were both in that photograph. Oh dear. It is very bad. 
Your majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. I was mad. Insane. You have compromised yourself seriously. I was only a crown prince then. I was young. I am but thirty now. It must be recovered. We have tried and failed. Your majesty must pay. It must be bought. She will not sell. Stolen then. Five attempts have been made. Twice burglars in my pay ransacked her house. Once we diverted her luggage when she travelled. Twice she has been waylaid. There has been no result. No sign of it? Absolutely none. (laughs) It is quite a pretty little problem. But a very serious one to me. Very, indeed. And what does she propose to do with the photograph? To ruin me. But how? I am about to be married. So I've heard. To the second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. You may know the strict principles of her family. She herself is the very soul of delicacy. A shadow of a doubt as to my conduct would bring the matter to an end. And Irene Adler? Threatens to send them the photograph, and she will do it. I know that she will do it. You do not know her, but she has a soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women, and the mind of the most resolute of men. You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why? Because she said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. <sighs> and we have three days yet. That is very fortunate, as I have one or two matters of importance to look into just at present. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present? You will find me at the Langham under the name of the Count von Goram. Then I shall drop you a line to let you know how we progress. Pray do so. I shall be all anxiety. Then as to money? You have carte blanche? Absolutely. I told you that I would give one of the provinces of my own kingdom to have that photograph. And for present expenses? The king took a heavy leather bag from under his cloak and laid it on the table. There are three hundred pounds in gold and seven hundred in notes. And mademoiselle's address? Is Bryony Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. One other question. Was the photograph a cabinet? It was. Then good night, Your Majesty, and I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And good night, Watson. If you will be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, I should like to chat this little matter over with you. At three o'clock precisely, I was at Baker Street, but Holmes had not yet returned. The landlady informed me that he had left the house shortly after eight o'clock in the morning. I sat down beside the fire, however, with the intention of awaiting him, however long he might be. It was close upon four before the door opened, and a drunken-looking groom walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers in the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed he. With a nod, he vanished into the bedroom, whence he emerged in five minutes, tweed-suited and respectable as of old. (laughs) Well, really... What is it? It's quite too funny. 
I am sure you could never guess how I employed my morning or what I ended by doing. I can't imagine. I suppose that you've been watching the habit and perhaps the house of Miss Irene Adler. Quite so, but the sequel was rather unusual. I will tell you, however. I left the house a little after eight o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. There is a wonderful sympathy among horsey men. Be one of them, and you will know all that there is to know. I soon found Bryony Lodge. It is a small villa with a garden at the back, but built out in front right up to the road, two stories. I then lounged down the street and found, as I expected, that there was a muse in a lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses and received in exchange two pence and as much information as I could desire about Miss Adler, to say nothing of half a dozen other people in the neighborhood in whom I was not in the least interested, but whose biographies I was compelled to listen to. And what of Irene Adler? Oh, she has turned all the men's heads down in that part. She is the daintiest thing under a bonnet on this planet. Has only one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He is dark, handsome, and dashing, never calls less than once a day, and often twice. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton, one of the inner temple. See the advantages of a cabman as a confidant. They had driven him home a dozen times and knew all about him. When I listened to all they had to tell, I began to think over my plan of campaign. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter. He was a lawyer. That sounded ominous. What was the relation between them, and what the object of his repeated visits? Was she his client, his friend, or his mistress? If the former, she had probably transferred the photograph into his keeping. If the latter, it was less likely. On the issue of this question depended whether I should continue my work at Bryony Lodge, or turn my attention to the gentleman's chambers in the temple. I fear that I bore you with these details, but I have to let you see my little difficulties if you are to understand this situation. I am following you closely. I was still balancing the matter in my head when a handsome cab drove up to Bryony Lodge and a gentleman sprang out. He was a remarkably handsome man, dark and moustached, evidently the man of whom I had heard. He appeared to be in a great hurry, shouted the cabman to wait, and brushed past the maid who opened the door with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. He was in the house about half an hour, and I could catch glimpses of him in the windows of the sitting-room, pacing up and down, talking excitedly, waving his arms. Of her I could see nothing. Presently he emerged, looking even more flurried than before. Drive like the devil. First to Gross and Hankies in Regent Street, and then to the Church of St. Monica in the Edgware Road. Half a guinea if you do it in twenty minutes. Away they went, and I was just wondering whether I should not do well to follow them, when up the lane came a neat little Landau. It hadn't pulled up before she shot out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but she was a lovely woman, with a face that a man might die for. The Church of St. Monica, John, and half a sovereign if you can reach it in twenty minutes. This was too good to lose, Watson. I was just balancing whether I should run for it or whether I should perch behind her landau when a cab came through the street. 
The driver looked twice at such a shabby fare, but I jumped in before he could eject. The Church of St. Monica, said I, and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. I don't think I ever drove faster, but the others were there before us. I paid the man and hurried into the church. There was not a soul there save the two whom I had followed and a clergyman. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. I lounged up the side aisle like any other idler who has dropped into a church. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three at the altar faced round to me and Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me. You'll do. Come, come. What then? Come, man, come. Only three minutes or it won't be legal. I was half dragged up to the altar, and before I knew where I was, I found myself mumbling responses which were whispered into my ear and vouching for things of which I knew nothing, and generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler, spinster, to Godfrey Norton, bachelor. It was all done in an instant, and there was the gentleman thanking me on one side and the lady on the other, while the clergyman beamed on me in front. It was the most preposterous position in which I ever found myself in my life, and it was the thought of it that started me laughing just now. It seems that the clergyman absolutely refused to marry them without a witness of some sort, and that my lucky appearance saved the bridegroom from having to sally out into the streets in search of a best man. This is a very unexpected turn of affairs. And what then? Well, I found my plans very seriously menaced, it looked as if the pair might take an immediate departure and so necessitate very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated, he driving back to the temple and she to her own house. I shall drive out in the park at five as usual. I heard no more. They drove off in different directions and I went off to make my own arrangements. Which are? Some cold beef and a glass of beer. I have been too busy to think of food, and I am likely to be busier still this evening. By the way, Doctor, I shall want your cooperation. I shall be delighted. You don't mind breaking the law? Not in the least. Nor running a chance of arrest? Not in a good cause. Oh, the cause is excellent. Then I am your woman. I was sure that I might rely on you. But what is it that you wish? When Mrs. Turner has brought in the tray, I will make it clear to you. Now, I must discuss it while I eat, for I have not much time. It is nearly five now. In two hours, we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madam, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Briony Lodge to meet her. And what then? You must leave that to me. I have already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point on which I must insist. You must not interfere, come what may. You understand? I am to be neutral. To do nothing whatsoever. There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in it. It will end in my being conveyed into the house. Four or five minutes afterwards, the sitting room window will open. You are to station yourself close to that open window. Yes. You are to watch me. For I will be visible to you. Yes. And when I raise my hand, so, you will throw into the room what I give you to throw, and will, at the same time, raise the cry of fire. You quite follow me? Entirely. It is nothing very formidable. It is an 
ordinary plumber's smoke rocket, fitted with a cap at either end to make itself lighting. Your task is confined to that. When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may then walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope that I have made myself clear. I am to remain neutral, to get near the window, to watch you, and at the signal to throw this object, then to raise the cry of fire, and to wait you at the corner of the street. Precisely. Then you may entirely rely on me. Oh, that is excellent. I think perhaps it is almost time that I prepare for the new role I have to play. He disappeared into his bedroom and returned in a few minutes in the character of an amiable and simple-minded clergyman. It was not merely that Holmes changed his costume. His expression, his manner, his very soul seemed to vary with every fresh part that he assumed. It was a quarter past six when we left Baker Street, and it still wanted ten minutes to the hour when we found ourselves in Serpentine Avenue. It was already dusk, and the lamps were just being lighted as we paced up and down in front of Bryony Lodge, waiting for the coming of its occupant. There was a group of shabbily dressed women smoking and laughing in a corner, a scissors grinder with his wheel, two guardsmen who were flirting with the nurse girl, and several well-dressed young men who were lounging up and down with cigars in their mouths. You see, this marriage rather simplifies matters. The photograph becomes a double-edged weapon now. The chances are that she would be as averse to its being seen by Mr. Godfrey Norton as our client is to its coming to the eyes of his princess. Now, the question is, where are we to find the photograph? Where indeed? It is most unlikely that she carries it about with her. It is cabinet size, too large for easy concealment about a woman's dress. She knows that the king is capable of having her waylaid and searched. Two attempts of the sort have already been made. We may take it, then, that she does not carry it about with her. Where, then? Her banker or her lawyer. There is that double possibility. But I am inclined to think neither. Women are naturally secretive, and they like to do their own secreting. Why should she hand it over to anyone else? She could trust her own guardianship, but she could not tell what indirect or political influence might be brought to bear upon a businessman. Besides, remember that she had resolved to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands upon it. It must be in her own house. But it has twice been burgled. Pshaw! They did not know how to look. But how will you look? I will not look. What then? I will get her to show me. But she will refuse. She will not be able to. But I hear the rumble of wheels. It is her carriage. Now carry out my orders to the letter. Ah! Is the poor gentleman much hurt? He is dead. No, no, there's life in him. But he'll be gone before you can get him to hospital. He's a brave fellow. They would have had the lady's purse and watch if it hadn't been for him. They were a gang and a rough one, too. Ah, oh, he's breathing now. He can't lie in the street. May we bring him in, ma'am? Shirley, bring him into the sitting room. There is a comfortable sofa. This way, please. Slowly and solemnly, he was borne into Bryony Lodge and laid out in the principal room, while I still observed the proceedings from my post by the window. Holmes had sat up upon the couch, and I saw him motion like a man who is in need of air. A maid rushed across and threw open the window. At the same instant, I saw him raise his hand, and at the signal I tossed my rocket into the room with a cry of... <laughs> 
fire! Fire! There's a fire! Put it Help! out! There's a, fire. a fire! Put it out! Thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out at the open window. Slipping through the shouting crowd, I made my way to the corner of the street, and in ten minutes was rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine and to get away from the scene of uproar. You did it very nicely, Doctor. Nothing could have been better. You have the photograph. I know where it is. And how did you find out? She showed me, as I told you she would. I'm still in the dark. (laughs) I do not wish to make a mystery. The matter was perfectly simple. You, of course, saw that everyone in the street was an accomplice. They were all engaged for the evening. I guessed as much. Then, when the row broke out, I had a little moist red paint in the palm of my hand. I rushed forward, fell down, clapped my hand to my face, and became a piteous spectacle. It is an old trick. That also I could fathom. Then they carried me in. She was bound to have me in. What else could she do? And into her sitting room, which was the very room I had suspected. It lay between that and her bedroom, and I was determined to see which. They laid me on a couch. I motioned for air, and they were compelled to open the window, and you had your chance. How did that help you? It was all important. When a woman thinks that her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. It is a perfectly overpowering impulse, and I have more than once taken advantage of it. A married woman grabs at her baby. An unmarried one reaches for her jewel box. Now it was clear to me that Our Lady of today had nothing in the house more precious to her than what we are in quest of. She would rush to secure it. The alarm of fire was admirably done. The smoke and shouting were enough to shake the nerves of steel. She responded beautifully. The photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel just above the right bell pull. She was there in an instant, and I caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. And now? Our quest is practically finished. I shall call with the king tomorrow, and with you, if you care to come with us. We will be shown into the sitting room to wait for the lady, but it is probable that when she comes she may find neither us nor the photograph. It might be a satisfaction to his majesty to regain it with his own hands. And when will you call? At eight in the morning. She will not be up, so that we shall have a clear field. Besides, we must be prompt, for this marriage may mean a complete change in her life and habits. I must wire to the king without delay. We had reached Baker Street and had stopped at the door. He was searching his pockets for the key when someone passing said, Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. There were several people on the pavement at the time, but the greeting appeared to come from a slim youth who had hurried by. I've heard that voice before. Now, I wonder who the deuce that could have been. I slept at Baker Street that night, and we were engaged upon our toast and coffee in the morning when the King of Bohemia rushed into the room. You have really got it. Not yet. But you have hopes. I have hopes. Then come. I am all impatience to be gone. We must have a cab. No, my brougham is waiting. Then that will simplify matters. Irene Adler is married. Married? Then? Yesterday. But to whom? To an English lawyer named Norton. But she could not love him. I am in hopes that she does. And why in hopes? Because it would spare your majesty all fear of future annoyance. If the lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty. 
If she does not love your majesty, there is no reason why she should interfere with your majesty's plan. It is true, and yet... Well, I wish that she had been of my own station. What a queen she could have made. He relapsed into a moody silence, which was not broken until we drew up in Serpentine Avenue. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe. I am Mr. Holmes. Indeed. My mistress told me that you were likely to call. She left this morning with her husband by the 515 train from Charing Cross for the continent. What? Do you mean that she has left England? Never to return. And the papers, all is lost. We shall see. Holmes pushed past the servant and rushed at the bell pull, tore back a small sliding shutter. Plunging in his hand, he pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler, herself in evening dress. The letter was superscribed to Sherlock Holmes, Esquire, to be left till called for. My friend tore it open and we all three read it together. My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you really did it very well. You took me in completely. Until after the alarm of the fire, I had not a suspicion. But then, when I found how I had betrayed myself, I began to think. I had been warned against you months ago. I had been told that if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you. Yet, with all this, you made me reveal what you wanted to know. Even after I became suspicious, I found it hard to think evil of such a dear, kind old clergyman. But you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. I often take advantage of the freedom which it gives. I sent John, the coachman, to watch you, ran upstairs and got into my walking clothes and came down just as you departed. Well, I followed you to your door and so made sure that I was really an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I, rather imprudently, wished you good night and started for the temple to see my husband. We both thought the best resource was flight when pursued by so formidable an antagonist so you will find the nest empty when you call tomorrow. As to the photograph, your client may rest in peace. I love and am loved by a better man than he. The king may do what he will without hindrance from one whom he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself and to preserve a weapon which will always secure me from any steps which he might take in the future. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess and I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Very truly yours, Irene Norton, nay Adler. What a woman. Oh, what a woman. Did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? Will she not have made me an admirable queen? Is it not a pity that she was not on my level? From what I have seen of the lady, she seems indeed to be on a very different level to your majesty. I am sorry that I have not been able to bring Your Majesty's business to a more successful conclusion. On the contrary, my dear sir, nothing could be more successful. I know that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. I am glad to hear Your Majesty say so. I am immensely indebted to you. Pray tell me what way I can reward you. This ring... Your Majesty has something which I should value even more highly. You have but to name it. This photograph. Irene's photograph? Certainly, if you wish it. I thank your majesty. Then there is no more to be done in the matter. I have the honor to wish you a very good morning. 
And that was how a great scandal threatened to affect the kingdom of Bohemia, and how the best plans of Mr. Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. He used to make merry over the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do it as of late. And when he speaks of Irene Adler, or when he refers to her photograph, it is always under the honorable title of the woman. You've been listening to The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, A Scandal in Bohemia, presented by Red Hawk Radio Theater. Dr. Watson, played by Maggie MacArthur. Sherlock Holmes, played by Jonathan Reynolds. Count von Krom, played by Chad Beatty. Godfrey Norton, played by Graydon Haley Ledour. Irene Adler, played by Elena Seidelman. Crowd of Extras, played by Trinity Smallwood, Abby Emmons, Caitlin Daney, and Gabrielle Fritos. Elderly Woman, played by Trinity Smallwood.